All right, First Peter chapter 5. By the way, I just loved getting to hang out. Appreciate the great feedback that we've gotten for just spending some time in this particular passage. But if you would be interested, if you're uh, one of the ladies in the church and you're interested in studying the rest of First Peter, uh, on Wednesday night, there's a gathering you could be a part of called The Well. And there's a Bible study that they're going through on First Peter. So if you'd like to study the rest of First Peter, that'd be a great place for you to do that. You can check again our, uh, the app and you can find all the information there about gathering with those ladies on Wednesday nights. All right, First Peter... Before we get to, to chapter 5, I've titled this, uh, I guess this is not too bizarre of a title, but it's, the title this morning is Rebooting Social Atmosphere. All right, and I'll explain what the social atmosphere dimension is about, but let me just back up into rebooting for a second. You know, when you open First Peter and you look at what this book is focused on, uh, there's a lot of rebooting comments in here. There's a lot of moments where the Apostle Peter is interacting with thoughts and ideas and ways of doing things, and and he's touching those things and nudging them in some kind of a direction, right? That's kind of what we mean by rebooting things. Sometimes the life that you and I are leading, this shouldn't surprise us, right? This should have been the, the, the major print at the introduction of your story. You are joining a story that's already in progress. And the story you're joining is the story of a broken, fallen world that God is in the process of redeeming. And he has done everything needed for that redemption to take place, but you are still in this broken, fallen world. Which means when you go to do life, uh, sometimes you're functioning out of broken, fallen information and not exactly out of God's wisdom and God's ways. So that shouldn't surprise us, right? So when we come to the Bible and the Bible sounds like it's pushing us this way and it's saying, hey, no, not that, but this, and not over there, over here, that shouldn't surprise any of us. It's God touching our broken, fallen world. And so we get some news here. Before we get to chapter five, there's just a bunch of nudges along the way right now. Some of these are just helpful if we bore down into them. And I won't do that this morning. I just want you to have the feel of first Peter before we get back to five. You know, chapter one, verse one, from the beginning, Peter's going to say something that's extremely informing. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, right? Kenner, Westwego, all over the place. Um, This is who you are. You are elect exiles, right? So when you go to do life, in America, when you go to do life in China, when you go to do life in Canada, when you go to do life in Saudi Arabia, if you're a Christian, you are an elect exile, right? That's who you are. So that should inform what kind of roots you're putting down here and how you're identifying or not identifying with the way things are done and the way people think. This is a massive identity reboot. When you and I are thinking about who we are and how we do life, uh, you're a foreigner. You are not a resident. You are not a citizen here. You are not of the same philosophical party as the people you're going to bump into on the street. Uh, Your home is somewhere else. You have a different reason for being here. That's a big one, isn't it? How many of us have seemed to be having the same reason for doing life that everybody else has? 
want to get ahead, want to have this, want to go there, want to experience that. Right? But we're exiles here. And we have a different reason for why we're here versus everybody else. And then Peter picks up this reasoning, this identity in verse 13 that, that Evan just pointed out. And he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's, there's grace that comes into our lives when Jesus Christ is revealed. And I think that's true ultimately at the end of time. But it's, it's revealed in, he's revealed in scripture. He's revealed when you and I are praying and having an exchange with God. My prayer for this morning is he will be revealed to us this morning. And grace, therefore, will come into our lives. And we're to set our hope there. How many, how many of you guys can recognize this past week you were tempted to put your hope somewhere, right? I mean, just think honestly. You want your life to feel like it's going somewhere that has meaning, there's hope for it. And so therefore something comes along that says, oh, if that would work out, if this turns out well, if that doesn't break and the finances are cool, you know, then, then I can have this sense of hope awakened. But this is telling me God's rebooting where we put our hope. We're putting our hope in the grace that comes from Christ and we're preparing our minds and we're engaging this holiness element. So all throughout first Peter, you kind of get nudged by this reboot, right? You're going to reboot holiness in the first couple of chapters. Then husbands and wives in chapter three, you get a reboot in first Peter. You get an understanding of here's, here's the role of the husband and here's the role of the wife. Not the way you would have done it in your Gentile world. Do it like this now. Then you get suffering last week. We're so helped by Pastor Peter's message last week and Ronald's message uh, two weeks ago. We don't look at suffering the same way as everybody else does. We have a different explanation for suffering. Right? So we can stare at suffering. And you know, in, in some way, I, I get this today. This will tie into some of the things that we're gonna, I'm going to take issue with this morning. But I'm not sim- unsympathetic that life can just be painful. And sometimes experiencing that pain, if you don't have a godly biblical explanation for it, it's very disorienting. It's very derailing. It can awaken in you anger, resentment, blame. You know, there's a, there's a moment in which the thing that cures Job, isn't Job the ultimate sufferer in, in all of humanity's history? Do you remember what fixes Job? It was an encounter with God. It was a revelation of God. I mean, he had, you got chapters and chapters of debate. Job's arguing with friends and they're arguing with him. Job, you did this to yourself. It's because you don't have your life right. Job's trying to explain, no, I don't think that's the situation here. And then... He's lost so much in his life. What could you possibly say to Job that's going to fix him? But he does get fixed. But not by getting answers to his suffering, right? He, he, he still doesn't get answers to why did this happen and then that? Why did you bless me with this and then took that away? He doesn't get explanations for that. He just gets a revelation of God. And then he, then he says, that's enough. That's good. I'm okay. In spite of the suffering. But, but I get that suffering are, is in these settings of our lives. And it can be so disorienting to us. 
But today when we, when we walk through this passage, we get to 1 Peter chapter 5 and we engage this social setting. This is a social setting that's being described here. There are some individual dimensions that we've read already. I'm going to go back and read this familiar passage again. We've been told to cast our cares personally, cast my cares on the Lord because he cares for me. I've been told there's a devil out there and I'm going to need to resist him firm in the faith. That's kind of an individual thing. But notice how much togetherness is here. Notice the social setting that's in this passage. There's going to be a flock and we're going to be among others. We're going to be receiving relational exchanges with other people. There's going to be people giving oversight to our lives. There are going to be people setting an example to us. And we're going to be following those examples. There's going to be a pervasive atmosphere here of humility that's supposed to be among us. Right, so this is a social setting that gets described, and it's going to get rebooted here in this passage. Right, So let's read, read this and, and listen for the social dynamics that are here. Verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, and not domineering over those in your charge, but being in ex- examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's read. Let's pray just for a moment. Oh, Lord, your word is living and it's active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It, it, it pierces to the inside places of our lives. Lord, it does the soul surgery that we need as we do life here in this fallen world. So, Father, yet again, we, we submit our hearts to you, Lord, through the vehicle of the word being preached to us. We ask for you to minister to our hearts. Lord, bring courage, bring hope, bring adjustment bring transformation, bring inspiration, God, bring correction, bring all the things that your word does for our good and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me just make sure we see something here, right? When we exit this passage, even just today, we're going to exit with a sense of generational harmony, generational harmony and cooperation and engagement. There's going to be humility that's set in place and intentional respect and regard for others in this setting. Boundaries will be in place, right? Earlier there was boundaries for husbands, boundaries for wives and local flocks that feel a certain way when you're there, right? That's, that's what I think Peter's after. But let me go back to this thought all throughout Peter, something's happening here. There's what I would call the installation of order. Right? Peter picks up life and, and, he, and he reorders it. He says, this is how you do that. And this is how you do this. This is how you do your citizenship. This is how you do the exile. Things is how you do marriage. There's order being brought to all these settings. Um, I don't know how to even say this, but I, I get that the, the ordering of things is different than the weighty 
elements of scripture that get presented that sound like the love of God, the grace of God, forgiveness, the loving kindness of God's covenant with us, the atonement and work of Christ. Right? Those things, I think, sit with a weight that's a little different than, hey, husbands do this and wives do that. But, but can I not put, pit those one against another in my heart because the Bible doesn't? Right? The Bible presents all these things to us. And let me, and I think you'll agree with this. If you are living in a social setting that lacks biblical order, I can almost guarantee you love might be there, but you're having a hard time experiencing it. Grace might be there, but you don't see it very often. Mercy and compassion and forgiveness, those things might be believed and acknowledged, but they're not common expressions and experiences. Right Where there is disorder, and you know, some of us grew up in homes like this. There was disorder in the home. There wasn't a sense of people properly playing the roles that they were called to play. There was, I mean, I was a rebellious kid, so I, I, I was the bringer of disorder into my own home. Uh, but, you know, I had a, had a mom who had a drinking problem my whole life. She brought a different kind of disorder into our home. Had a mom and a dad who couldn't figure out how to do marriage together with their issues with each other. That brought a different kind of conflict and trouble into our home. Right? So you've got your story, right? You grew up in something that it had disorder in it. Your marriage could have disorder in it. And if I were to ask, hey, was there love in your home growing up? Was there grace being experienced in your home growing up? I think if you were honest, you'd say, well, there was love and there was grace and there was forgiveness, but it wasn't featured and it wasn't experienced very well. Why not? It's really hard for those things to find expression and experience amongst disorder and chaos. I know lots of churches, lots of churches who preach on grace and we preach on forgiveness. We preach on love. We preach on forbearance. We preach on all kinds of dimensions that we could experience among ourselves. But sometimes the chaos that gets in social settings drowns that stuff out. So maybe you grew up in a home where, yeah, there, yeah, there was love, but it felt like that love was stuffed underneath a sofa cushion somewhere. And the noise and disorder of life is what you remember. And it's what maybe affected you the most. Well, God's got a household going on here. And so Peter's bringing all these dimensions. You, know, you might say, well, you know, as I read through Peter, I don't know if he talks enough about grace and enough about love and enough about... But, um, it's the inspired word of God. He talks about it exactly as much as he should have. But he's not wrong for bringing order into some of these settings because without a sense of order, you're not going to experience these things. And I want to be a part of a church. I want my marriage to have this. I want my family to have it. I want us to experience grace, not just have a concept of it on a shelf. I want to know something about the vibrancy of love full of affection and forbearance with one another and patience and care. I want to, I want to experience that, not just have a concept of it sitting somewhere on a cool bookshelf. And that's what we want for this setting as well. All right. So you and I are living through a massive social transformation that I, I think I'd be safe to say is unmatched and unrivaled any time in human history before. 
what has come on the scene of our lives in the last decade or more in the form of social media has redone the way in which we do social relations, social communication, social connections, social exchange. It's just not the same world that some of us grew up in and it never will be again, right? This, this dimension is going to stick with us. But I put a question, I think I put this question in your outline. How many would agree that social media is a new setting for human relations that lacks a sense of order, appropriateness, boundaries, and manners? You remember that word manners? You remember that growing up? Did your parents make a big deal about manners? Remember there used to be Miss Manners and she wrote a column and you could write in advice you know, basically I've been socially mistreated. What should I do? Right? That's what every column was about. Right. And it was about the idea that there is actually a right way. There's manners. There's a way to conduct yourself in certain settings. There's certain things you don't say, right? My, my parents, you know, probably needed to make sure we were on board with some of those ideas, but we got taught manners, you know, and, and when we went places, we got reminded about those manners. Now, okay. Now remember, you know, at grandma's, you don't, you don't do this and you do that, right? And you explain some form of manners. Uh, how many of you guys have noticed that social media doesn't come with any manual uh, for manners? There's no explanation of that's appropriate, that's not. That should be said, but that shouldn't be said, right? It's like this thing got invented and it got way out ahead of everybody and nobody installed any sense of boundaries in it, right? So here's, here's what I think could come across. In media and social media, it's filled with speaking, but not listening, rude interruptions, harsh judgments and caustic criticisms, tribalism and warfare, selfies, self-promotion and self-expression, big commitments to secondary ideas and small commitments to primary people, ease of cancellation, uncharitable judgments, pronouncements of guilt without the slightest practice of due process. Right? When, when we step into this social environment, like today you stepped into a social environment, it's got an atmosphere here. And when you do relational exchanges in the body of Christ, there's an atmosphere among us. When you step into the social media world, there's an atmosphere there. It feels a certain way. There are certain kinds of exchanges that are taking place. Things are being done and things are being said there that, I mean, let's be honest, we would never say to another person face to face. We'd never conduct ourselves and just let loose and voice our outrage to somebody that we're actually sitting having coffee with. We would never speak that way to someone. But here's the massive problem. And I'm pointing this out because it's a massive problem. You know, as a human being, God has tucked inside of us, the, you know, mental processes, emotional processes. They're all bound up in there. They're part physiological. They're part of our soul. And so you and I engage something on the outside of us, people, ideas, exchanges, settings, conflicts, stuff going on. We look at it and we take it in and then we process it. And in the processing of it, we think about how to respond, what we're going to say. There's an emotional 
dimension to that. There's an ideological one. Sometimes we agree with things. Sometimes we disagree with them. And so we, we are interacting with stuff and processing it daily over and over and over again. And, we, and we're doing that more and more through screens and through that setting of input. And that setting has a certain style about it. It's got a certain atmosphere to it. Right? And it's everything I just described. It's rude. It's abrupt. It's outraged. It's ideological. It, it doesn't do much with your humanity. There's not much sympathy. We're not trying to understand anybody. It's just an argument of this point versus that point. The people and what they're made of don't really matter in those moments. Right? This is social media. And you and I get used to processing information that way. As a matter of fact, I think it would be true. We're processing more of life in that media than we are now face to face. And then we come face to face with each other and we're in a church together and we're doing life in the kingdom of God together. Are we thinking that we just shut that way off when we walk in here? When we do life in the kingdom, we gather in the small groups and we relate to others. Are we thinking we just, well, that's my... That's my cyber version of me, my church version of me. It's much kinder. It's patient. It listens It interacts, takes on people's cares. It extends grace because I'm mindful of the grace that's been extended to me. I'm quick to forgive because forgiveness has flooded my own soul. But when I go on social media, none of those things apply. I'm not humble. I'm not kind. I'm not patient. And I'm none of those things just a talking point. I think you can get the point, right? That stuff's going to leave a residue in your soul. We're not going to be to each other too much different than what we are in the way we process life. We're emotionally easily outraged. We're easily offended. I'm going to walk away from things very quickly. All right. This all has an effect on this atmosphere that God's called us to build for the sake of building a family of God for his glory. So when you create an acidic, I'd call it an acidic environment, right? The social media is an an acidic environment. Uh, It doesn't have order and that comes with a price, right? Some of this stuff, I don't know if I wrote in your outline specifically, but these social settings that are acidic, they become void of experiencing love, kindness, patience, a sense of belonging, affection, understanding, forbearance, grace, forgiveness, covenant community and loyalty, security, steadfastness, right? Everything I just said should be what the atmosphere of a church feels like, but that's not what social media feels like, does it? And social media is training us how to process social exchanges, right? So Peter comes along and he highlights some things here that, that reboot the atmosphere of social settings. And I just want to pull on a couple of them here. I wanted to pull on three of them, but I, I learned in the first service, I'm only going to get to two. So verse two and verse three, right here, Peter is going to reboot this setting by speaking to the elders about the example that they're supposed to be providing in this setting. Verse two said, Elders, you are to shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight. Now, this is, this is the atmosphere with which you do this. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. 
and not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. All right, so this is not just when, as soon as it says be an example to the flock, this stops just being an elder passage. Because this is what elders are told to do as a model, as examples for everybody else. So this is an everybody else passage too. So when we step into these social environments, right? And I want to include your home in this. When we step into these social environments, right? We are called to play a role. Elders, play your role. Fathers, play your role. Husbands, wives, play your role. Young people, play your role, right? Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. How many of us remember often enough that you are in the social settings that you are in by God's doing? You have the children that you have by God's doing. The easy ones and the hard ones. You have the spouse that you have. By God's doing, in good times and bad. You are part of a church by God's doing. Right? So play the role that you're called to play, not by some compulsion, but willingly, because it's what God would have you to do. Yeah, and listen, it makes a massive difference in a social setting for you to figure out whether God's called you to this or not. That's a massive difference. Because I know if God's called me to something, one, my desire in life is to do the will of God. That's, that's the biggest thing I got going on. And if God's called me to it, then he's going to provide the grace for me in that setting. So I need to be convinced. Are you called here, right? Lakeview Christian Center. Is this where you're supposed to be? And, and when the people around you disappoint you, color outside the lines, don't show up for you in certain categories... When the leaders don't do things that you wish they had done differently, when that happens, are you here by God's design? Because that's what makes longevity and loyalty and forbearance meaningful because we know God's called us to something, right? So this is an atmosphere where we're playing our role. Secondly, this is a place where our motivation is not for shameful gain, but we're eagerly doing this. Whether anything comes back to me or not. Whether you like my post or not, whether you affirm me or not, whether you applaud me or not, whether the things about my life are noticed by you or not, I'm in this relationship not motivated by selfish gain, right? Elders, play your role that way, but everybody live by that reality so that when you engage other people in the social setting called the church, your motivation isn't, what can I get from this person? Can I just tell you, I mean, I've heard too many times people's stories where, where they almost felt used by people because they started to pick up on people would relate to them in a certain way, would affirm them a certain way, would applaud them a certain way, as long as you were playing by somebody's set of rules. But as soon as you colored outside the line, as soon as you stop showing up, right? Or maybe you are, you are a great influential leader in your life. And then something happened in your life where, you know, your parents got ill and, and your business got sideways. And all of a sudden you had to pull back from people and you just weren't engaging people the same way. You stopped doing for them what they got used to you doing. And it's, it breaks my heart sometimes to see 
how few people then show up in that person's life, right? They served you all these years and you don't even know what's going on with them now because your motivation in that relationship was what was to get something from me. I was benefiting from them opening their life and making time for me. And every time I had a problem, they'd text me and follow up with me and meet with me. But then when they went away, I just kind of stopped taking notice, right? That gives away something. We get in relationships for our own reasons, right? This is supposed to be a place that doesn't feel controlling or manipulative or forced. That's what that word, not domineering over others. Elders are not here to force people, to manipulate them, to use some form of shame, to get you to do things in agreement with us, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit's supposed to be at work in people's lives. We're just supposed to give that opportunity to take place. But that's not just an elder thing, right? That's an everybody thing. That's in whatever social environment you're in, that, that you're not the source of forcing other people and manipulating them. And this, and this happens in all kinds of social settings. This happens in families. This happens, oh, all of us have memories of this, right? You grew up with versions of the way your mom or your dad spoke to you. And you eventually figured out what they were doing. That, that polluted motivation towards you was in the way in which they treated you. And you begin to resent that. And you had to manage that. And that comes that husbands and wives do that to each other. Right? But, but the Bible says, no, no, that's not the, the atmosphere that God's trying to create for relationships here. Now, let me jump to that second one there. This is supposed to be a social setting that, that features generational vibrancy. Right? You have an acknowledgement of elders that are here. And then in verse 5, likewise, you who are younger. So if you're not one of the elders, you are a younger person. Be subject to the elders. Now, I think the context for that statement lends itself to meaning the elders as in the office holders of the leaders of the church. But there are some translations who don't translate it that way. They say, be submissive to those who are older. And that word that's used for elder is also the word for older. So I do think there is a dimension in God's economy that there is a, there is a respect and an engendering and a posture that younger people are to have towards older. Those who have gone before them. Those who have walked with God for a long time in life. Those who've had life experiences that as a younger person, you could benefit from those life experiences. I very much believe that's in this passage, right? So this highlights something that is so broken in our day all around us. Out there, the atmosphere out there is generational hostility. And generational, what I'll call generational silos, you know, if you've been in an organization, you know that there's ways to do organization that people end up getting siloed, right? You got your area and you just live in your area with your people and you don't have any knowledge of what's going on in the rest of the company. That's a silo. And generations get siloed because we kind of think alike. You know, if you're close to a certain person in age, you were raised with the same ideas. You were raised with the same issues. You went through the same traumas together. Your, your country was going through the same stuff. So you're kind of like, hey, I know how to do you because you're kind of like me. And you think about stuff like me. I have no idea how to do these people over here in this other silo. They just think different, dress different, behave different. They're up to something different. And then that doesn't just get to be the fact that we're different. It can become very hostile. So in this room today are two extremely hostile groups of people. 
the ones of us who grew up in the 60s and 70s, you guys wrote the book, and I was part of that, of hostility towards previous generations. You guys wrote the book. And then the guys who came along who are adults in the 2010s and on, you wrote the next chapter in the book. And there is this hostility between generations. And you guys who were 60s and 70s, uh, you just remember that there was this moment, right? I mean, this 1968 summer of love kind of stuff, all this protest going on, all the previous ideas, all the ways in which those people did stuff before us, the establishment, remember the establishment? We're anti, I'm anti-establishment, man. The man, man, I'm going to stick it to the man. There was this attitude that the people and their ideas that had come before us, they missed it. They got it wrong. They don't know what they're talking about. And there was this massive pushback against them. And and it, it became very hostile. And it became a, quote, generation gap back then. And that's only repeated itself. It didn't repeat itself for every generation, but it has repeated itself in this generation now. There is a a hostility between generations, a disrespect, a resentment even. If you're a younger person, you resent, and you're being taught this every day as you listen to the news, to resent that generation that created the problem of global warming. It's, It's that older generation that is sitting here in the room with you that's got the giant carbon footprint who spoiled our whole world, who made it miserable for us to have to live in that world. And everything's warming up and the oceans are rising and all the difficulties in life with the weather is created is because you people were irresponsible. Oh, and you're the same generation, by the way, who built everything out of, the, out of capitalistic ideas. You stood up capitalism and let's face it, capitalism rewards the rich and it keeps the poor people down. And, and you guys created that. And that's everywhere now. And you stood that up and now you're to blame for all the issues and all the tensions that are here among us. You're the same generation that did nothing to deal with systematic or systemic uh, discrimination issues. Matter of fact, you're the ones who created a lot of them. You created these power structures in education and in finance and in the economics of the way the world operates that you guys have created all these problems in our world. So when you watch the news at night, there's, there's not a real affection between younger and older in these categories, right? There is a hostility. There is a mocking. There is bitterness and resistance and resentment that is between generations. But I don't find that in here. I don't find that generationally God knows anything about generations having those kinds of attitudes toward each other, right? God installs words that are kind of hard to live by today, right? Elders in this passage, the older are to be honored. They're to be valued. They're to be put in positions to lead and counsel and guide. That's who they are in this paragraph. Younger are to be subject, right? This is a loaded word, this be subject. In the Greek, it means to place or arrange under, to subordinate, to be brought under a state or influence to be brought under the influence not to be forced to be under the influence but to subject yourself you are bringing yourself 
under the influence of some older people that have lived in your space. Who have known God the way you are seeking to know God. Who have read the Bible the way you are seeking to read the Bible. Who have led families the way you are trying to lead your families. Who have had careers the way you're trying to have careers. And the Bible comes along and says, seek them out. Seek their influence. Put yourself under their influence. And that should be the atmosphere here. It should be familiar that younger and older have conversations about life and what we're pursuing and what matters and how to navigate and how to make some of these decisions. But that's not how it is in the Western world. That's not how it is, especially in America. There is a warfare here. Right? Even in the first century, if you went back and checked the culture back then, you'd have been known that submission was an appropriate cultural virtue. That all segments of the culture would have approved of. Not so much today. And I got a quote in your outline from Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor has written a book called The Secular Age. He wrote it back in 2007. It's a very big book. Uh, it's probably not a book you should rush out and buy. But it is filled with almost prophetic insights into some of the fabric that's gotten woven into our culture since the 60s. And how our culture became what it, what it is. And, and he points something out here that I thought was worth our attention. He says, let's call this age of authenticity. It appears that something has happened in the last half century, perhaps even less, which has profoundly altered the conditions of belief in our societies. I believe that our North Atlantic civilization has been undergoing a cultural revolution in recent decades. The 60s provide perhaps a hinge moment. We now have a widespread expressive individualism. We see a steady spread of what I have called the culture of authenticity. I mean, the understanding of life which emerges with the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century, that this is what he means, that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity. That it is important to find and to live out one's own as against, right? Don't, don't do it this way. As against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. This is, this is massively, massively important to see. How common did this become? The idea that it's wrong to impose one person's views and opinions on another. Do you hear that much today? That when, when somebody's imposing something, telling somebody else who they can and cannot be, Interfering with the identity that they want to have for themselves, the ways in which they want to self-create their own definition for life. It's wrong for you to tell them that's wrong. That's a bigger wrong than whatever they're doing. Because the idea that you or anybody would impose something on someone else has been made to feel wrong. How are you doing with that? Resist things being imposed on you? 
when expectations, values, priorities, somebody else's view is imposed? Does that feel wrong to us when we interact with it? So this this is, you know, you get the phrases, you know, don't come at me, don't put that on me. Right? There's, there's that sense of, I, I have the right to do things my own way. I, I don't have to do it the way you did it, okay? Well, maybe in some categories, yeah. Is that true in all categories? Right? There's an economy in God, right? And this is extreme. I'm going to give you a real brief run through the scriptures in this. But God has a, what I would call a generational economy. God reveals some things to one generation. Then he says, hey, now play telephone, pass it on. He doesn't show up and say, hey, I'm going to reveal this to this generation. And then I'm going to show up exactly the same way the next generation. I'm going to reveal it again. I'm going to show up to the generation after that, reveal it again. You're going to find in scriptures, we'll look today, God reveals something. And then he says, now you pass it to the next generation. And so if we posture ourselves to say, hey, previous generation, those of you guys who overwarm the planet, keep your own ideas, okay? Uh, we have a breakdown in God's economy, not just in our personal preferences. This is the way God does things, right? Here's what generational economy means. It means certain things in life were not to be generationally reinvented, but rather were to be preserved and passed from generation to generation. It, it, it looks like this. It doesn't look like this. <laughs> Change the paint on it, turn it upside down, cut that off, and then pass it. And it doesn't look like throwing this aside and finding something else to pass. It just looks like pass what God gave you to the next generation, right? And here's where you hear that. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is where God's rehearsing life in the promised land. That's what Deuteronomy is, if you're wondering where that book comes from. It's, hey, we're on the doorstep of the promised land. When you go in, here's how you do life. So in Deuteronomy 6, God says, and these words that I command you today, and of all the things, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. So God takes a generation and he speaks to them. He gives them from himself. He's the authority. And he's saying, I'm commanding you. Does that sound like an imposition? It does to me. It sounds like the God of the universe doesn't say, hey, you guys are on your way into the promised land. Self-invent. Come up with some ideas. Whatever you guys feel like your own humanity should look like, go for it. That's not what God sounds like. God created with a purpose. He's not all right with his universe coming up with its own thing and doing its own thing. He says, here's my commands. Here's my revelation to you. Now, you diligently teach that to your children. You talk about it all the time. Let it come up in this setting and that setting. When you get up in the morning, when you're doing life together, talk about these things with each other. Psalm 78 Verse five says he established, he meaning God, God established a testimony in Jacob and he appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded 
our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children, right? This is God's generational economy. Verse seven, God, why were you doing this? So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So God says, listen, I am setting some things in concrete here, right? These are non-negotiable, established things. And he established a testimony and he appointed a law. God gave this revelation of himself, of his ways, of why he created things and what's the purpose behind it. And he tells this generation, diligently teach this to your children and to your children's children and pass it from generation to generation. Why, God? Because you're a big killjoy? Because you don't want us to come up with any of our own exciting new ideas? No, because I want you to, to set your hope in God. As opposed to what? Well, setting it somewhere else. See, there are other things out there, aren't there? Aren't there some other ideas that are available today for us? And you can set your hope somewhere else. Man, this has just become so confusing too. I mean, we live in a world that's more confusing at a fundamental level than it has ever been. Right. I, I don't, I'm not trying to be some lightning rod uh, element here. I just, I just want to point out something that is a living example in our, in our world today. Um, you know, when I was growing up, there was a lot of things about my identity that I, you know, was trying to figure out, right? How long my hair should be? Is my nose too big? Do my ears too big? Do people like me? Am I funny? Am I talented? Am I going to fit in any kind of a way? Do, do my own parents love me? I mean, just... You remember being a kid? There's a lot that's hard to grow up and, and to figure out. The one thing I never had to figure out when I was a kid was, was whether I was a boy or a girl. That, that wasn't up for grabs and it wasn't up for self-definition. Nobody had invented that way of looking at your identity at that point. And there's a, there's a thing that gets transferred, right? So we, we're living in a world today that almost makes it sound heroic. If you're one of those parents who have left that up to your kids, right? When I, when I see this get presented in the news, it's, it's usually about some famous person who's had a child and they're having some interaction with them. And, and they kind of highlight in some way that, you know, well, when they discover or whenever that comes about or whatever they choose, and, and the news item in which you read it, it's all, that's always applauded. That's, that's to be commended. Parents like that are to be commended. But when I open the scriptures, the very first thing that God reveals about human beings, that in the beginning God created, and he made them male and female. All right, so that's one of those things that I pick that up and I just do this with it. I don't take it on the side over here and adjust it and change it and hand a different version to the next generation. 
This is what God has revealed. He has revealed this about himself. Let us make man in our image. So we exist as an expression of the creativity that God put an image of himself into his creation. And nowhere did God then give us the freedom to go whatever direction we wanted to with that. And then something about that image required male and female. So this, I just picked that up and I pass it to the next generation. I don't get to augment it or change it. And quite honestly, today, some of the, you know, when you live in the information age, um, there's lots of other ideas available, aren't there? You don't have to think that way about human sexuality. There's other ways to think about it. Okay. Well, where's that going? Is that going to go to a good place? I mean, that feels like empowering people to make their own decisions about themselves. That sounds like that's going to land in a good place. Is it going to land in a good place? You know, my generation had some ideas. Sexual revolution, drug culture, hippie movement, upset establishment, you know, reinvent order. It had some ideas. Would you, would you say all those ideas brought us to a good place? I mean, here we are in 2020, living in the sweetness of the dope smokers. We were all smoking dope back then. I mean, we weren't thinking straight. Somebody had blown their minds in acid and just, and they had some ideas. And the world is, is healed today? Is it all, we're all good to go? We're not, right? So along comes a, a new generation that is come up with some new ideas. And, so, and you can do something with those ideas. But the one thing God was concerned about was where are you going to put your hope? That's what I'm concerned about for you. So this generation, hey, make sure you pass along this information to the next generation so that they can put their hope in me. But when you cut off that information and you don't present it, then people are going to put their hope somewhere else. And so we have generations coming behind us in an information age that are being offered on a daily basis, new places to put your hope. But what's coming with that is a generation that's more disillusioned, more dissatisfied, more depressed, and more desperate than any generation before it. Just do, don't even read the Bible. Don't even talk to a Christian. Just do a psychological study of human condition right now. You will, you will find, I don't remember the, the statistics you will find a massive increase in suicides since the turn of the century. You will find more depression than ever in the last 10 years. Somebody's putting their hope in the wrong place because they're putting their ideas in the wrong place. God had something that he was interested in us transferring, right? Let's transfer the knowledge of who I am, the way that I am the world that I've created for purposes that I've created to transfer that to the next generation. All right, right now, right? So the, if the battle cry back in my day was, you know, to stick it to the man and not go with the establishment today, the battle cry that starts at a young life generation is question everything. You are being taught if you're a young person to question everything. Don't treat things like they're established and they're right. Question it for yourself. Make it answer to you. See if it bears witness with you. And if it's not right for you, then, then hey, you don't go with that. 
And this has resulted in the most massive move of people deconstructing the lives that have been passed to them. This is what the information age does. It gives you new ways of doing stuff. So there's a massive deconstruction of people deconstructing the, the way they were raised, deconstructing their faith, deconstructing their understanding of what the Bible teaches, more so now than 20, 30 years ago. But can I just ask an honest question for folks who are... are, are in the throes of questioning things. All right, so you're questioning something. You're, basically, you're just questioning an idea. Right? There are ideas about where we came from, who we are, what we're doing, and you're going to question that idea. And so let's suppose that you decide to discard that. Right? That's what the church has always believed. That's what the generation, my grandparents believed that. My parents tried to teach me that. I, don't, I resist that. All right, so that means you're going to need another idea because you got to do life, Right? So whatever space that idea was occupying, you're going to need another idea. Where are you going to get that idea from? Are you, are you really, I don't mean to be super insulting when I say this, but are you really thinking you're going to come up with something original? That you're going to come up with an idea about humanity and yourself that no one's ever had before? That's not ever been tried before? It's going to be so pure and it's going to be so right. Your generation is going to finally, finally originate the thing that explains human existence and fixes it all. Are you really anticipating that? Right from God's standpoint, can, can I tell you there were, there, were, there were only two voices in the Garden of Eden. So when God presented his ideas and he said, this is who I am, this is who you are, this is how we do life, this is how everything goes happy. And they decided, I'm not sure I want that idea. They decided to question everything. Well, they got a little help, right? A little voice came along and said, you sure? You sure that's how that works? The first guy to question everything was the devil. And then he was the same guy who offered another explanation. How'd that work out? Not, not good, right? He, in, he invented the fall. He brought a chaos into humanity. He disrupted hope forever when he did that. So when you and I are facing this moment where we're questioning things that have been passed on to us, God designed some things to be passed on to you. God designed that there would be people with maybe too big of a carbon footprint who are passing something on to you that's super valuable and absolutely essential for your own life. And before you just listen to a generation that's telling you, if it's coming from that direction, shut it off. Don't listen. Before you do that, can you make sure you've read the Bible? The Bible says, submit yourself to that. Listen to those older voices. Welcome what they say in your life, but, but they're stupid in some categories. Yes, they are. Yes, I am. So was Adam and Eve. And every generation since them. And yet the Bible still turns around and says, hey, when you go to reboot the social atmosphere of this place, you younger, look to those who are older. I, I know they ain't got it all together. I know they fumble and got some really goofy ideas too. But you need to look to them. Because they're going to be passing some things to you that you absolutely need to get from them. Now, let me, let me warn the older folks in this group. Um, we have a sacred 
job here. And I, and I say that if you're older, you have a sacred job. If you're an elder, this, this lights me up. And this probably makes me not fun to have exchanges with sometimes. Um, I would recognize for elders in the church, we have a, a sacred role of making sure we don't pollute this with this. That we don't take the authority of God's word and add to it human ideas that came from our generation and our way of doing things. Because when we do that, when we're violating the scriptures, right? God didn't tell us to pass everything to the next generation. There are styles and preferences. There are opinions. There are ways of doing stuff that you're free each generation to reinvent any of that stuff. But there are some things that you're not free to reinvent. And what we have done, I'll give you one example before we pray. What we have done in, in my generation, my generation did this, um, it passed something that you actually got it. You got to watch it come to full fruition in the year 2020. All right. How can I do this quickly? Whenever culture shifts in a really bad direction, the church reacts to that. And that's not a bad thing. So in the late 1800s, early 1900s, you had this, this social shift that took place in the church world as well. And so People began to displace God and doctrine became less important. The Bible became less important and caring for people became the thing that ruled the day. And when that happened, uh, conversion and being a Christian got blurry. There was a lot of doctrine that just began to get lost. So a group of people said, you know what? We need to be clear on the biblical things that really, really matter. So a group of well, well-intended, wise guys wrote a collection of books. It's now called The Fundamentals. I used to have a set of the fundamentals that got washed away in Katrina. Um, the fundamentals is where we get the idea of fundamentalists. Have you heard the word fundamentalist? Right? That's a group of people in our society. Well, they drew their ideas from the fundamentals of the faith, but then that became very moral oriented. It was how people behave. And so the more moral it became, the more the interest became about the morals, about doing things a certain way and living a right way. And then most of us in this room are old enough to remember the day this group came on the scene called the moral majority. These familiar phrases to some of you older guys? The moral majority, Jerry Falwell and a group of Christians, saw an opportunity to improve the morals of the country in which we live. And they ended up forming a bit of a partnership between the church and what we would now know as conservative evangelicalism. We had a common interest. We wanted people to live within some moral boundaries that reflected the character of God. That's not a bad goal. But the Bible never called for you to make a partnership with anybody to do that. So when the church kind of got partnered with conservative values, and then, you know, Ronald Reagan became the pope of that movement. He was the ultimate president. He stood for the right things. We're going to get behind him. And every president since him has been measured by him, hasn't, haven't they? He was a unique guy playing in this arena. But along the way, something deadly was being installed and passed from one generation to another. It was that you would set your hope in your life being a good life, meaningful life, purposeful life in the guy who sits in the White House. In conservative politics. In philosophies that guide conservative decisions that get made. Now listen, if, if you and I want to have a discussion about conservative politics, let's put that over here. And let's have that discussion. 
I've got some opinions in that category. But can I just tell you, I don't have a mandate in my life to pick up conservative politics and pass it to the next generation. I have a mandate to do that with this. And the reason why in the year 2020, you saw more Christians want to jump out of windows because they had lost all their hope because the wrong guy is now in the White House. How did you come to believe that? Well, it's taken decades to convince people to believe that way. But can I tell you what it's done to a younger generation? A younger generation has actually looked at their Bible long enough to know, I don't think you should have done that. Matter of fact, I don't fully agree with the politics of the conservative evangelical movement. I agree with some of it, but I don't agree with all of it. What? Right, you guys know I serve, I don't know who's going to watch this video. I I serve the region of churches in Sovereign Grace, so I kind of help give some oversight to the pastors. And I had one of them tell me that there was a member in their church who wanted to make it a requirement. If you're going to be a member of the church, you could not be a Democrat. And they were totally serious. And I, I thought, okay, this is, this is an elder's response to that. And the scripture and verse you're referencing is where in that? You want me to codify that and turn that into a law for the people of God to abide by that. Because that was so near and dear to the hope that resided in that person's soul. And I tell you, a previous generation has polluted the sufficiency that you and I could find our hope here. Whether we got a king, parliament, congress, president, dictator, emperor, whatever it is that we had, that we could transfer something that calls people to put their hope in God and not pollute it, right? We're not called to pass on bell bottoms and crew cuts or long hair or whatever else. Or to judge people who don't dress like we did or your hair's too long. I mean, how much did the church struggle because of hair length with people? Really? Is that, am I supposed to be doing that with this? No. You want your hair long? Grow it long. You want it short? Grow it short. You want a tattoo? Get a tattoo. Whatever. Oh, did you just say they could have tattoos? Some of y'all are freaking out right now, aren't you? Because I'm not called to pick up tattoos or no tattoos and transfer it to the next generation. And the more I do that kind of stuff, the more this generation starts to figure out, that dude don't know what he's talking about. I don't know that I want to submit to him. Now, can I just tell everybody younger here? You're not being asked to submit to the previous perfect generation. You're just being asked to submit to the previous generation. So be careful that you don't make us qualify to win your votes. This is just God's way of doing this. But let me do that. I'm going to close us in prayer here. Um, I, I would have, you know, this, this, is, this is a passage for this atmosphere right here, for this environment right here, for what we do in the kingdom of God. And I would, I would think, and this is something I just want us to pray about this morning. When you and I interact with the world as it is, it's quite often through a device and we learn to have a certain attitude with that. And matter of fact, we may be learning from others which which ideas are really important, which ones are non-negotiables, 
which one to really get angry about, which one to be kind of cool with, doesn't really matter. We may be learning that from some script provided by somebody else in social media land. And then we come in here and, and we want to hear other people echo some of those same things. And we start to create criteria that other people have to meet. We've got an edginess to us. We go on social media and we blow up fellow Christians in public. We, we, we don't handle them with anything that looks like what we've read in this passage. There's no humility in the way in which we have exchanges. So I, I want to I highlight something. I'm going to ask us to pray about this because we're never going to escape this, not in this world. There is a social dimension of our lives that's being done through social media. It's training each one of us who uses it every day. And then there's this setting. And God has already established some order here. There's already manners for how we treat one another. There's this thing called humility and patience and kindness that is a part of this. There's understanding one another. There's convictions as well, by the way. The Bible's filled with convictions. If you're, I, I would dare say you can't be a real Christian and not have strong convictions. If you've got no convictions, I'm pretty sure you're not really a Christian. But yet we're called together into an atmosphere that we're going to create together, right? You just, you can't create it from the pulpit. It's got to be created by everybody. We all bring this atmosphere together. So I'm not sure how, what blows you up in this category, what gets underneath your skin before you knew it was there and what's animating you in some kind of a category. You know, I don't do social media, so I, 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 I don't, my sin hasn't migrated into that category. Uh, this is as close as I can come. Like today, when I drive home, uh, somebody is going to be on the road with me who has no business driving a vehicle. I mean, and, and they're going to get close to me somehow. And they're going to put on display their lack of driving skill and their lack of care for anybody else on the highway. And they're going to do something flat, stupid. And everything in me is going to, in that moment, present a fresh challenge to whether I'm going to be a Christian in the next five minutes. And if nothing else, right, I'm going to have this moment where if nothing else, I can't wait to get to the red light up here. So that at least, at minimum, I can stare a hole in the side of their head. Burn marks will be done when I'm done. And then this voice comes in right behind that. It's the voice of the Holy Spirit. And I thank God that he's in me. Who says, Keith, when you're done staring a hole in their head, will you be able to tell them about Jesus? And immediately I slow down a little bit more and I don't get eye to eye with them on the side. I just restrain that a little bit. Because my mission in a social setting is about the gospel. That's why I am in touch with other human beings. Just because it's called social media and you're not there face to face, your mission in exposing your life to other human beings through any media is about the gospel. It might be better if some of us would slow down, give the Holy Spirit a moment before we type anything further, before we engage any conversation. And maybe for some, maybe we ought to shut down some accounts because we, we just aren't creating an atmosphere. And can I just tell you, as much as you think, well, that's not who you are when you come here. Oh, yes, it is. You don't have the ability to suddenly clean yourself up and it's going to interfere with what you build here. It's going to be a problem. So can I pray for us this morning in this category?
that, that God would reboot our social atmosphere and the way in which we do relationships and the way we relate, relate to one another. Right, let's, let's just bow our heads together and pray for a moment. Lord, it's not good that man should be alone. That was just, that was said once. And that was the last moment that man would be alone. After that, he was going to be relating to others. He was going to be in a social setting. He would come into a family. He would be part of a community. He would be part of a nation. He'd be part of a church. So Lord, we are called to be social beings with one another. And Lord, not just called to be that, you use that. That's, that's a, in, a critical tool that you are using in our lives. And Lord, just glancing at this, we just see that you have plans that one generation would relate to another generation. There'd be a social exchange that passes on the might, the greatness, the works, the truth, the revelation of God himself. So, Father, we, we want to invite, Lord, I want to invite a social reboot in my own life, in my church, in the relationships that we're walking together, in the environment that we're creating. Lord, people who walk in these doors, who, who live among us, who come into our homes, who get into a small group, have a conversation with us. Lord, they're coming in from a noisy place of hostility and hatred and outrage all around ideas that seem to have bodiless people in them. But Lord, we, we're called to walk with people, to understand, to have compassion, to interact with truth, and yet to still have more interactions when we're done because we did it with care and wisdom. So Father, would you invade our social settings? God, we're just inviting you to do that. The Apostle Peter gave wise input to this social setting. God, we want to receive it. And I pray for every role player who's in this room, every mom, every dad who's leading in their home, every young person, who, every child in a home who's going to be submitted to something. Lord, every person who's part of this local church, every person who leads a small group, every elder in the church, every older person who's been walking with Jesus for years. God, that we would be careful what we pass on to the generations coming after us. And for every young person here, there'd be an eagerness to receive, even if we don't do a good job. They would reach out and welcome and ask and seek to receive something into their own lives. Lord, reboot the social setting. Lord, what a desperate need humanity has to find a place where there can be joy and peace and love and grace, forgiveness and forbearance in real human form, in real life. God, make us that in the future. God, reboot the social atmosphere of the church, Lord, so that the richness of all that you are to us can dwell with us for years and years to come. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for how it adjusts us. Thank you for how it leads us into life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. God bless you guys who are watching. So great to at least be with you this way. Next week, a variety of new settings for you to come join us in.
part of the church one way, part social distance. Come join us as soon as you can. We'd love to see you.